This is Joya Italiano. This is Jeff Ekman. And welcome to Oh, That's a Thing, a podcast about the real science and sci-fi movies. Even if you haven't seen the movie, don't worry. We use the movies as jumping off points for some pretty awesome and real topics. That's right. We're not experts at all. We're actually just a couple of goons who Googled some stuff. But this stuff is pretty cool. Yeah, so sit back, relax, maybe learn a thing or two. Here we go. Here we go. Jeff, are you ready for your snow to get pierced? Oh, my God. (laughs) With, like, a harpoon? Yeah. Yeah, or a train. Yeah. However you want to look at it. (laughs) We watch Snowpiercer. We watch Snowpiercer. (laughs) Directed by Junho Bong. It's a Korean production. It was actually the largest budget for any Korean production ever, $40 million. The director later went on to do a movie called Okia, which I've heard nothing but good things about. Where it's, like, this giant pig that feeds the world. It's, like, another... Sci-fi allegory heavy kind of concept, like in the way that this is like very clearly an allegory and not like a, what if this happened? Right, guys, let's take a listen to the trailer. Let's do it. A thousand people in an iron box. 18 years I've hated my train. 18 years I've waited for this moment. This is your world. The train saved humanity. The engine lasts forever. The population must always be kept in balance. I said sit down. Passengers, eternal order flows from the sacred engine. We must occupy our preordained position. I belong to the front. You belong to the tail. Those bastards in the front think they own us. We'll be different when we get there. Precisely 74% of you shall die. I think that pretty well encapsulated the whole movie. Sometimes we deal with trailers that you're like, well, you can't really pull much. No, that was as intense as the movie. <laughs> yeah. Close to it. Montage City. So this is based on the French graphic novel Le Transbetsenage. I don't know. <laughs> but I guess Jun Hobong discovered it in late 2004 during pre-production of The Host, which I've actually never seen. But I guess he was fascinated by this concept of people just struggling on a train for survival. Yeah, and- I read that when he discovered the comic, it was like it's standing in the aisles of the comic store and like he started to read it and just couldn't stop until he had finished the entire thing standing right. there in front of the shelves. Yeah. Basically, it's like it takes place in 80, 20, 31, and it's like the whole world froze, all life became extinct, even cigarettes. You said 2031? Yeah. Oh, wow. I didn't realize how soon it's supposed to yeah, take exactly. place. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, it's really fascinating. You could even hear in the trailer, it's kind of like this microcosm of class warfare that mm-hmm. we all experience, but in this like particular ecosystem right. on the train. And- what if instead of the whole world of class systems, right. it was all contained? in a train. Yeah, all contained in a train. All contained. <laughs> fuck me. Yeah, fuck you. <laughs> now, well, because I didn't notice this, in, but I, in my research, saw that I guess the markings on the engine, which is a circle with a narrow S on it, it represents the yin and the yang, oh. which we've covered on the show before, but it's supposed to say that it's like the same relationship between the front and the back of mm-hmm. the train, like the front can't survive without the children of the back, and mm-hmm. the back can't survive without the food from the front it's right. this quote unquote perfect symbiotic relationship but it's clearly <laughs> Where like one's not. totally yeah. fucked and the other yeah. one is totally good it's just got their fucking greenhouse car and yeah. fancy foods and stuff their sushi yeah totally well I, I saw that there was like kind of a delay in the release of the movie and it was caused mainly by Harvey Weinstein oh boy because this movie is a Weinstein company movie mm-hmm. and Harvey before he was known as a sexual predator right. was known as Harvey Scissorhands because he used to cut movies up like crazy. Right. He's like, For the frustration of directors. Sure, it's like the 
being a dick producer, but right. in like the yeah, producer like, kind of way, not exactly. like you're yeah. a complete monster of a human. So he was famous for like demanding monologues, explaining a movie at the beginning and then cutting all sorts of stuff. And basically the director and a bunch of people who heard about the making of this movie and knew that it was going to be great, signed petitions and eventually stood up to Harvey Weinstein and managed to have the release of the film be as the director wanted it and not as Harvey wanted it. Right. And I think that that panned out in a way that everybody wanted. It was all better for it. Yeah. I read the director had reservations about casting Chris Evans in the lead role because of his muscular physique because, you know, as a resident resident of the (laughs) poverty-stricken tail section, Curtis should not be especially physically fit. But luckily, with the magic of cinema and costuming and careful camera angles... Evan's bodacious bod was uh-huh. kept from showing. It's too <laughs> he bad, still looked, like, he was well fed. His face was well fed. Yeah, if you <laughs> if you watch the beginning of the first Captain America movie, because he's Captain America, right? Of course, it, they <laughs> did like insane CG stuff to make him have a literal weakling's body. Oh, okay. When I'm just thinking, like, oh man, it would have been cool to see like a like because he's buff in this movie, dude. The motherfucker started out as like the jock in not another teen movie. Right. Like he just That's, is. I forgot the guy. about that. <laughs> oh man, he's so fucking funny. Oh shit! Oh man! I also saw that that the part of Mason, which was Tilda Swinton's character, was originally written for John C. Riley. Oh shit! Yeah. So not only was it a male character, but he was also supposed to be like kind of nice. But then once she was cast, they were like, "Let's make her like a complete sociopath monster." But then they like specifically left lines that referred to her in the masculine form, Uh you know, which I didn't notice in the movie, but I guess is there. That's fascinating. Yeah. John C. Riley could have done amazing in that role. Like, oh god. Well, she had to sit in a bunch of makeup, and I guess the glass, the crazy glasses that she wore, were Uh hers. It was like her kid (laughs) played around in the box and costume box and found them, and they were just like. I read a little bit that it was a thing where like she wasn't sure if she wanted to do a movie or like certainly not a movie like this. And in conversations with the director, she wound up realizing like she just wants to have fun. Yeah. And she she started like figuring out this character and she was like, this would be fun to play. Right. And so that's why she decided to do it. I thought she nailed it because it is that you're like you're unassuming and like. You know, you're non-threatening aesthetically, I guess. Right. But then, like, the words coming out of your mouth are pure nonsense. You, and then... And she then, would make a, such a great, like, Nazi leader. Oh, yeah. You know? Because you're like, you're, I don't... Uh, something to you. <laughs> I don't know. Nazi leader, <laughs> sure. No. Yeah. The, <laughs> what, a, what a mean thing to say about yeah, somebody. Yeah, she'd make I, a great Nazi, that yeah, Tilda yeah, Swinton. She, she, what an actress, you know? <laughs> so that the crazy protein block that is like the food source for all of the, you know, steerage part of the right. train, that was actually made by combining seaweed, sugar, and gelatin. And I guess Tilda Swinton liked it, but of course, Jamie Bell, who was like the... Uh, oh, the British guy, like, he uh-huh. fucking hated it. As yeah. well, Like, how could you not hate it? It looks it disgusting. It looks gross. I yeah. wanted to talk about that just on the level of, like, we've talked about before that bugs may be the future of food and that you can make them tastier than this. Well, so that's what they were really made of in the movie. They're supposed to be ground up bugs. And your complaint was that it's like, why aren't they tastier? Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, because they turn them into like a brown, gross looking jello. Yeah. And if you guys listen back to our episode on the movie Soylent Green, we went in depth on the future of bugs as food and the ways that people are making grasshoppers tasty and oh, yeah. grubs and Fry stuff. Try it and, and put some chocolate and caramel on it. Yeah. There's this crazy thing. I can't remember where it is, but they take like pans, like frying pans, uh-huh. and the bug density is so like of like flies is so serious that they wave the pans around in the air a bunch of times and capture a bunch of the bugs on the bottom of the pan that uh-huh. way, and then they scrape them up and scoop them together and make like burgers out of it. <sighs> 
it's a lot. It's a lot. Anyway, they're not making burgers in this movie. No, they're not. Oh, yeah. Last couple of tidbits. So I remember that dumbass scene where Chris Evans slips on the fish. Oh, yeah. I remember. And that was something even Chris Evans was like, not cool with it. He was like, please don't make me fucking do it. But I guess Juno Bong got the idea from the Godfather. Okay. You gotta sleep with the fish. Slip on slip. Sleep with slip with slip with the fishes. (laughs) Fucking Jesus. Dumbo. (laughs) And then finally, according to filmmakers, train babies, which that was a fascinating concept. Train babies like Yona developed animalistic hearing skills. So do you remember how she cut? Like she doesn't talk a a lot at first, but then it was. I mean, I guess it's sort Hmm. of similar. Like if you're raised. In a, in the woods or something With like that. No actual yeah. language. Yeah. Although you. the only reason why I find that weird is it's like you're still around people who use language, which is how you learn language. So right. why would you just be, just by virtue of being on a train be like I'm an animal now? Like, right. No. <laughs> I guess that's just the allegory creeping in and taking right. over. Yeah. The... I mean, I, I appreciate the idea of like assessing what would happen to a generation that would, and we've talked about this before, if there was like a space station that pe- we had to be on while yeah. we're trying to find other planets. And generations that were born yeah. after never having seen the planet yeah. Earth. It's like they're gonna, like every generation's gonna have their thing, but I don't yeah. think that not, like being around people is not gonna make you start talking like an animal. No, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> Science. This movie features a train. <laughs> you may have heard of the Hyperloop, which is a futuristic train technology. Right. I just know about it being real fast. Is yeah. All. Yeah. Okay. Proposed by everyone's favorite technologist, Elon Musk. Mm-hmm. The Hyperloop is a really interesting idea for a super fast train technology, which if built and if it works, could take you from L.A. to San Francisco in about 30 minutes. Love it. Instead of, you know, taking a plane or driving the six or seven hours that it right. takes. Basically, it's known as a vac train. Mm -hmm. It's a sealed system of tubes where they suck all of the air out and create a vacuum. And so without the air resistance or friction, a pod, as they call the trains, Mm -hmm. can travel through the tubes faster than any train could go today. Mm -hmm. You've heard of maglev trains where they levitate just off the tracks using magnets? I have not, but that's that's a a thing. (laughs) That's a thing, too. That allows a lot less friction on the railroad tracks than traditional trains, and this is like taking the next step in removing friction. Gotcha. Okay, cool. So Elon Musk decided to make the whole thing open source, so it's not like he or Tesla or SpaceX owns the technology, but whoever does build the first one is going to own that infrastructure. Right, sure. And that's going to take billions of dollars. Like right now, they're doing proof of concept tests and there are millions of dollars being put into research and development. Like the idea was first announced in 2012. Right. That's crazy. I didn't think that we would be this far along already, but there are actual tests like the first successful Hyperloop test was done just late last year. Okay. And do you know what the test consisted of? Just like it was an open air thing, okay. but it was it involved like this type of pod that like it was able to achieve an acceleration at a rate that no train had done gotcha. before. But they use like an actual train because I'm just yes. wondering because like when you say like this kind of like vacuum action, of course I imagine like the old timey ATMs where your money you'd put your money in the thing and be like Thoo! yeah, it's basically it's, like yeah. a pneumatic tube. It's yeah, like a pneumatic it, tube. Yeah, exactly. Except I think pneumatic tubes are using air pressure to shoot through the tube itself whereas right. this would remove all the air pressure to Just, allow it to fly through like as though it was in space that's crazy like the, one of the issues that surrounds this is like how f- much acceleration can the human body handle in a given amount of time right like how you would be able to get the inside of the cabin safe right for people while on the outside oh man and then like i'm thinking about all just like crazy safety concerns safety. and like kind of maintenance and upkeep of those tubes because it's like mm-hmm. one wrong thing and it's just crazy crap 
splash, no? Exactly. And and a lot of people worry about, like, if an earthquake were to happen while you were in it, traveling at that kind of speed, even just a slight amount of shaking can cause, like, severe vibrations on the inside. Right. And people think that it would be a potential target for terrorism, you know? Because it would be easy to fuck up, theoretically. Yeah. And so there's a lot of questions surrounding, like, will this ever be a thing? Now, just for me, I don't really know how fast the fastest trains that we have now are, like, what that comparison is. Do you happen to know? The fastest trains right now go about 250 miles per hour. Okay. The Hyperloop could go over 760 miles per hour. Damn. Yeah. That's pretty dope. Oh, yeah. And, you know, that's closer to basically having, like, a plane that you don't have to deal with, like, the fuel of the plane and, right. like, all the the number of issues going through security. Who yeah. knows? Taking your shoes off, yeah, taking a laptop yeah. out of the bag. I'm sure you'll have to do that on the Hyperloop, too. TSA pre-check. Hyperloop pre-check. <laughs> Hyperloop pre-check. <laughs> all right. So one of the earliest gnarly scenes that we see in this movie is that guy getting punished for what did he get punished I don't even fucking he know. stood up to Tilda oh yeah there he was, was something to that effect he was being a rabble rouser he caused oh, some he hullabaloo like, did he throw an, not an egg at her oh he threw a shoe. a shoe he threw a fucking shoe yes. she was like she didn't say who oh, throws a shoe but she, she should have been <laughs> <laughs> no but she did like put the shoe on his head right. very symbolically like, you like you're under my boot right exactly I'll give you a shoe <laughs> So anyway, this guy gets punished by having to put his arm out the window for a while and just like screaming and it sucks. And then they pull his arm out and it's gotten like frozen solid and then they smash it to smithereens. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about before on the show, like you looked into the possibility of a human arm being able to do that, right? Yeah, I think it was back in the Time Cop episode. Okay. Refresher on that, dunking your arm in liquid nitrogen for 30 seconds will freeze your skin solid, but the internal temperatures of your arm will only drop a few degrees. Mm -hmm. Everything will thaw in about 10 minutes. Over a long period of time, though, it is possible to freeze a body to the point of shattering, but it basically can't happen instantly like in the movies. Right. And I also talked about this Swedish company called Promessa, which has a new type of eco-friendly alternative to cremation, where they freeze a dead body to negative 320 degrees. The body becomes totally brittle, and then they use sound waves to shatter the body into a powder which leaves behind instruments like pacemakers and stuff like that. Oh, that's so weird. Oh. Then they put the powder in a coffin, which then becomes a fertilizer within six months, and you can plant a tree or something there. That's fucking And it's like a much better way of preserving the nutrients that are in your body than just cremation would. Right. So those are like, either it's liquid nitrogen or like just Mm. extreme, extreme temperatures. So we're supposed to assume that in this world that we've created, it's cold enough for like you to put your arm outside and it to freeze all the way through. Right. Like you would have to, and I I think it would have to be for longer than they show him having yeah. his arm out in the movie. Right. But I mean, it was all right because I was like, how come he's not screaming anymore? It's like right. there had to be a whole scene. So they were like, let's just. Uh... Well, there is, I think, a point at which you would stop feeling it. Right. It's and, numb. And yeah, yeah. yeah. And you're just kind of like sitting there. Yeah. But so I wanted to look into frostbite, which is yeah. not quite as extreme as having your arm shattered, but it can get pretty fucking gross. Yeah, it it turns black. Yeah, man. So frostbite is, obviously, it's an injury caused by freezing of the skin and underlying tissues. It's most common on extremities like fingers, toes, your nose, ears, Mm -hmm. and cheeks, stuff that's exposed in cold, windy weather. But it can occur on skin covered by gloves or other clothing. The risk increases as air temperature falls below 5 degrees Fahrenheit, which is negative 15 degrees Celsius, even with low wind speeds. And in wind chill of minus 27 degrees Celsius, it can occur on exposed skin in less than 30 minutes. Yeah. So, like, you know, at first your skin just becomes kind of cold and red and then it gets numb and pale and that's called frost nip and that it doesn't really 
really cause mm-hmm. permanent skin damage. You can just treat it with first aid measures and just rewarm the skin. Mm-hmm. But then as this as the frostbite gets more intense, like even superficial frostbite, the skin becomes kind of white or bluish white or grayish yellow and then kind of harder waxy looking. Mm-hmm. What's confusing is that your skin might still feel warm and like feel, remain soft and then just some ice crystals begin to form and you might not even know that you have it until somebody's like, uh, you got you some, got some crystals. Yeah, not even or, black. Oh, At yeah. this point, it's just ice crystals and like it just looks red oh, or maybe wow. it's starting to change a little bit. This okay. is that superficial frostbite. Mm-hmm. So at this stage, if you treat it with rewarming, the surface of your skin may appear just blue or purple. This is similar to like if you've ever, you know, run out in the snow and then run into a hot tub or right. something like that where you get that kind of like burning and swelling feeling, but right. just more extreme. That yeah. like tingling where you're like, oh, that's hot. It's it is cold. Weird. Yeah, there is like a, a burning sensation yeah. in the snow. Exactly. <laughs> like, why is that? Going from extreme cold to extreme heat. Mm-hmm. You're just like, my, my skin, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. But at this point, a fluid filled blister may appear 24 to 36 hours after rewarming. Okay. It's when you get that severe, that deep frostbite that it affects all layers of the skin including the tissues below like your joints or muscles may no longer work you get these huge blisters that form between 24 to 48 hours after rewarming and then after that is when the area turns black and hard as the tissue dies and if you google severe frostbite right now there's Don't like some it. crazy no, yeah <laughs> there's gross. like blisters it looks like gangrene that's yeah. basically what it is which is like one of the complications as a result mm. of frostbite is that you're basically just it, you can't function anymore so this the tissue is literally dead when it turns black yeah wow exactly yeah. So, which results in oftentimes people having to get amputated right i mean ice because a lot of the pictures that i saw it was people being like i went on this crazy hike and some ice got in my boot and oh, i didn't no. know and it, you know and if you're wow. out there for extended periods of time and it's disgusting yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really it's really gnarly. Well, I remember just growing up in New Hampshire where things got really cold. There was always like at school they would really put some severe warnings when it was like below 10 below zero outside right. of like if you go outside with any amount of water on your body, totally. like make sure you don't do that. Like lots of precautions about your ears and your fingers and right. frostbite that knowledge. That makes sense. Well, and especially if it's if it happens where like once you start numbing, you don't necessarily know. Exactly. You know? And if you're an eight year old kid, like who's just you, a dum dum, yeah, it doesn't yeah. Like, I feel everything all the time. I don't know what's what. Certain medical conditions that affect your ability to feel or respond to cold might make it worse. Like if you're dehydrated or exhausted, if you have poor circulation or diabetes, that kind of thing. Alcohol or drug abuse could uh-huh. could help could hurt because alcohol causes your body to lose heat faster smoking obviously if like infants and older people have a harder time retaining body heat and stuff right, and then right. like being at higher altitudes there's less oxygen supply to your skin and that sort of thing right. but then what sucks is like if you get frostbite then you have first of all an increased sensitivity to cold and like an increased risk of getting frostbite again oh no you might have long term numbness in the area there's something called frostbite arthritis which is you know, Whoa. the change in between your joints, like in that cartilage as a result of the frostbite. Oh, and man. then, like I said, that like gangrene, tetanus, there could even be fucking growth defects in children, which kind of makes sense to your point. Like if if it damages the bone's growth plate, right? then there might be growth defects. So wow. it's like, yeah, huh. I had only thought about frostbite in terms of the just the blackness right but it's like all the stages and then the long-term effects and yeah yeah. i guess it's like yeah in the same way that burns work in various degrees you know yeah first degree second degree third degree burns and like that you get the frost nip you get the superficial frostbite (laughs) yeah exactly deep 
the deep frostbite. Yeah, so wear several layers and don't get wet yeah. in the snow. It's just crazy <laughs> to me that human beings can survive in areas of complete coldness. Right. And like, yeah, I guess there's a lot of cases of frostbite, but then right. enough of us survive that yeah. like we're able to be icemen. Right. Well, we're also like we're civilized motherfuckers. It's like you put some of us right. out in the wilderness for a couple of days and we'll be like, ah, I'm frozen solid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the shining style. <laughs> In this movie, it indicates that a terraforming solution used to combat global warming caused the extreme cold on the planet. Right. It was oh, a, yeah, they were yeah. trying to find a solution and then it It was like our technological solution to fix global warming wound up causing the destruction of the planet in the opposite direction. Gotcha. One day we may be terraforming planets turning their atmospheres into ones with breathable oxygen and rain on a regular basis right. and all things that, you know, human beings need because we evolved on Earth first. Were we talking about that with regard to Mars at one point? Yes, yes. because okay. that's like, you know, deep in NASA's plans, right. really far into the future, mm-hmm. is like, we want to turn other planets into yeah. livable places. NASA's got deep Mars plans. They got deep Mars plans. <laughs> so, but first, we're going to test some of these technologies and various forms of them right here on the one planet that we have that we really can't fuck up yet because we haven't terraformed any of the other ones. Right, right, right. <laughs> so I looked at a few insane ideas to combat global warming. One is to create a man-made volcano, which could send tons of shit into the air that would cool the planet, like what happens after a natural volcano. I feel like that's a backfire waiting to happen. Right? I mean, it just seems imprecise and dangerous. And guys, we're doing volcano next week. Volcano is next week. (laughs) I was going to say, like, with the multiple degrees of burns, I was probably going to look into that for next week. Oh, perfect. Another crazy plan is to wrap Greenland in a blanket. Right. Yeah, like a giant reflective covering that absorbs heat and prevents it from reaching the ice below. Like a, like a thermal blanket? Like a thermal blanket. On Greenland. <laughs> On all of Greenland. So skeptics think it's impractical. <laughs> right, sure. <laughs> and that it would affect wildlife, but we got to protect the ice somehow. I know. Baby blankets I mean, are the way to go. Dude, we're spitballing now. Yeah, exactly. See what sticks. Another is to launch a bunch of satellites into space that act as a solar shield, basically reflecting a lot of sunlight away before it reaches the Earth. That doesn't seem super unreasonable. It doesn't. Does it not? But it Maybe also, the extent. I mean, the Earth the is a big like, fucking place. Well, that's with all of these things. It's like we're testing it on the one planet that we can never really fuck right. up. Right. You know? Like, I mean, in just, like more than we've already so fucked high. it up. Oh, okay. Because well, I was like, we can't thing. fuck it up. It, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, the, and that's where this movie's idea comes from. Right. Is like all of this shit. Yeah. So there's a ton of other crazy ideas, like vertical farming, covering buildings in algae, fertilizing the oceans, and creating artificial trees. Okay. But right now, I, I want to talk about one of these crazy technologies, which is called cloud seeding. Hmm, okay. So people are actively trying to do this to help combat droughts. Clouds are not perfectly efficient at producing rain. Mm -hmm. There's parts of a storm that are turning clouds into rain more than other parts of the storm. Okay. In summer, there aren't enough ice crystals, and when the droplets fall in liquid form, they'll usually evaporate too quickly. Oh, wow. I didn't realize... Well, first of all, I didn't realize that there were different parts of the cloud that did rain. Right. That's weird. Okay. They're just not totally efficient at producing rain out of the cloud. A lot of it just, yeah, evaporates back into the air. We're trying to do this thing called cloud seeding, where we shoot a bunch of silver iodide into the sky. Silver iodide has a very similar structure to ice, so ice tends to want to bond to it. Silver iodide. 
Correct. Yes. So we get it up there a few different ways, including flying over a storm in a plane and dropping the seeds or shooting them up into the air from the ground, like with rockets and various other methods. Cool. In 2009, in China, they were having a serious drought. And shortly before a storm, Chinese engineers blasted more than 400 cigarette-sized sticks of silver iodide into the sky. Damn. Which they believed was a procedure that would make the snow a lot heavier. There wound up being a huge, huge blizzard. And they really needed that at the time. And whether or not the cloud seeding project was the actual cause of the blizzard, or if it actually didn't do anything, the Chinese government took credit for nailing it. Of course, yeah. Apparently in 2008, during the Summer Olympics in Beijing, they used 1,104 rockets with cloud seeding technology to get the rain out of the clouds before they reached the Olympic city so that there would be no rains during the ceremonies. Oh my God. Of course they did. That's <laughs> I, fucking crazy, dude. It's, right? Like, There's not going to be rain on my wedding day. Exactly. They literally ha- tried to make that a reality. <laughs> it's like rain on your wedding day unless you have iodide, silver iodide. Yeah, up in the sky. <laughs> so the idea of cloud seeding has been around since the 1940s when lab experiments showed that it was possible. And interestingly, Kurt Vonnegut's brother, Bernard, was the guy who figured this out. He, Bernard Vonnegut? Bernard Vonnegut <laughs> figured out that silver iodide had the ability to modify the weather back when he was a researcher for General Electric. That's fucking crazy, dude. It's still unclear how well any of this works. Like, we do little experiments of cloud seeding to see if we can change the nature of a storm, whether to reduce hail or to increase rainfall, but we still don't know how much of an actual difference it's making. Right. It's just so hard to measure because of the number of factors that go into a storm that we still don't know about. Right. We talk about that all the time of like all these particles that you can't really measure. So how do you know if what you're doing is actually making a difference? And also like if that is potentially causing future damage, like you're fucking with the weather system. We've talked about that a lot on this show many times of just like, you know, we we like the idea of innovation to solve some of the problems that we've encountered. But at the same time, how many more problems are we potentially creating by trying to manipulate this the world well (laughs) on that exact subject Mm -hmm. there's a lot of concern surrounding this because a lot of people think it's unnatural Mm -hmm. and i saw a quote from a cloud seeding scientist who said the problem with saying it's unnatural is that as a human species since we started burning fossil fuels we've been modifying the weather systems on a much larger scale than any cloud seeding project i mean and i think that's an excellent point so to suggest that we haven't already been doing that with all that. I mean, it's like man-made climate change is right. already a thing. The so. potential harmful effects of silver iodide are a drop in the bucket compared to smokestacks or auto exhaust. Right. As as of now, in terms of the all of the data we have, because like you said, if you can't even really tell what kind of difference it's making and it kind of happens to be like happenstance right. that there was no rain at the fucking Summer Olympics or whatever. Exactly. Like it, it, they're going to take credit for it, but yeah. it's unclear whether or not that was true. I would. I would, I would like, totally I mean, be like, we nailed it. Yeah. Scientists are hoping to be able to use cloud seeding to increase rainfall by about 10%. Mm -hmm. So it's like that may be all you really need to help combat droughts, but it's not like it can create a storm out of nothing. Mm -hmm. You have to already have a storm to seed. So if an area under a drought has no clouds to seed, they're kind of fucked until we come up with something better. Right. So it's kind of like a booster. It's a booster. For something else. Right. Well, I mean, I honestly, I feel about this similarly to how we've we've talked about GMOs and that kind of thing Mm -hmm. where you're like, if we are dealing with droughts, then creating seeds that are drought resistant is not the worst thing that you can do. Like, I feel like to a large degree, we're past the point of no return when it comes to actually causing damage to the planet and the environment. 
but now we just have to figure out how to still sustain life on this planet and to make it habitable, right? And it is funny to me just the weird non-equivalence that we're able to have when we talk about like, well, that could ruin the planet. And it's like, no, it's trying to save the other things that we're doing to ruin the planet. But there's something about the specific idea of like, we're trying to change the weather that changes in people's minds. Like, we're not just trying to get in our car and go someplace. Yeah, it's the difference between like using resources that, you know, some people might say are like, God given and we're supposed to to find these things, whatever. But then and people have a really hard time, probably also as a result of all the sci-fi movies that we've consumed, right, right. of like people playing God, and like people right. always find out that it's like is science the new religion, you know, and <laughs> yeah, all this yeah, kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. Just that's why people say things are unnatural. It's like what the whatever the fuck was natural a hundred years ago that right. we think is not natural now, and then what we think, you know. Do you remember why there were smelling salts in this movie? I don't. Somebody was like revived with some smelling salts. I wrote it down. Yeah, I do think that, yeah, there was, well, because there's the drug that the guy is taking the whole time, which turns out to be an explosive. Yeah, this whole movie was kind of a fever dream for me, but I remember writing down smelling salts, so I wanted to look into it. Let's do it. (laughs) How do you wake somebody up with a salt? Right. Now, first of all, smelling salts have been used for reviving those who have fainted, for athletes needing a chemically induced wake-up, etc., for for many Ooh. years. But I wanted to look into what... <laughs> is it cocaine? Like, what? wait a minute, I'm just realizing, what does this have to... No. <laughs> a little pick-me-up. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, you know, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what they're made of. First of all, there's not sodium in smelling salts, so it's not actually salt. Okay. The main and most active ingredient is ammonium carbonate, which is a solid chemical compound that, when mixed with water, releases ammonia gas. Now, ammonium carbonate is also known as baker's ammonia because it was used as a leavening agent prior to the popularity of baking soda or powder in the early to mid-19th century. Interesting. And it's actually, baker's ammonia is still used in a few traditional Scandinavian Christmas time recipes like speculoos, which is like a spiced shortbread uh-huh. cookie biscuit thing, and then lebkuchen, which is a, like a gingerbread cookie. So I wonder if it's good. <laughs> Oh, well, Speculoos I've had. I know Trader Joe's has their, like, Speculoos spread or whatever. Oh, yeah? yeah, it's like a shortbread biscuit. Yeah, it's great. But and I'm it's like, made out um, of the, with the ammonia stuff? Yeah, oh, in place wow. of, like, baking powder slash baking soda. You're like, hmm, all right. Yeah. Now, so smelling salts work because the human body aggressively reacts to the ammonia gas in several ways. When sniffed, the gas irritates the nostril membranes and lungs so much that it triggers a sharp inhalation reflex. So when a person passes out, they sometimes lose consciousness due to decreased blood flow to the brain. So sniffing it makes them just be like, ooh, and so it wakes them up, right? It's like a forced inhale of oxygen. So the the smelling salts can also raise a person's blood pressure, their heart rate, oxygen levels, and it basically just helps brain activity and, you know, reactivating the sympathetic nervous system. Now, medical research confirms that sniffing smelling salts after fainting can in some cases be beneficial but of course the question of the toxicity of ammonia gas remains because exposure to large amounts can cause lung damage blindness and even death Mm. the occupational safety and health administration even set a 15 minute safe exposure level for highly concentrated ammonia gas because it's like highly explosive and corrosive and all that but you know considering the amount of ammonia gas in a snort of smelling salts is minimal and it's you know it's only for that effect you're not doing it all day yeah you're not huffing although I mean, I've seen some crazy shit on intervention, man. I wouldn't be surprised if somebody's like, I'm ammonia gas. So like, as of now, there's never been a known case of someone dying of ammonia gas poisoning due to using smelling salts. Okay, yeah. 
So I wanted to give that little breakdown of like how it works and what it's made of before I got into the history of smelling Ooh. salts. Because I was like, when did this start? I feel like there was some, you know, <laughs> hit and misses maybe early on. Yeah. So I read that the Romans were the first to use smelling salts to, quote unquote, awaken the senses. Mm. Now, Roman philosopher and author Pliny the Elder mentions, homo- uh, let's see, Hamoniacus Saul. Who knows what that's okay. actually said in his encyclopedia, <laughs> Natural History. And there's a debate if it's related to the 13th century word sol ammoniac, which is a rare mineral made of, of, of ammonium carbonate that I was talking about that was well known to alchemists at the time. Mm. So sal ammoniac was experimented with and distilled in their attempt to discover the philosopher's stone, which I know nothing about, but I really All want to All I know into. is that that's the original name of the sorcerer's, sorcerer's stone. stone. Right. That's what I was thinking. Harry Potter. Right. But I was like, oh man. Okay. Side note. <laughs> I'll look into Philosopher's Stone later, later because I also read about a similar experiment that was searching for the Philosopher's Stone and played with a massive amount of human urine that eventually gave what? us the first element discovered since ancient times, which in my extremely brief Googling, I believe is phosphorus. So that is definitely something that I'm like, I need to look into this in the future. Isn't there a connection between urine and ammonia? Because I believe that like when you get stung by a jellyfish, there is that thing about peeing on it, which I think is not true. Right. But I do know that I've been to play- beaches that have ammonia available to actually combat the jellyfish well, thing. And, and that's what I thought. And this is why I might be wrong, which is why I was like, this is for future referencing because right. I assumed it was ammonia, but the article I was reading like didn't say it. It was just like the first elements. I was like, so ammonia, right? There's right. a ton of ammonia and cat pee. I don't know. And and then I read something that was talking about phosphorus. So, guys, to be continued, we'll figure it out. It could be ammonia. It could be phosphorus. I'm assuming it's ammonia. Who knows? Anyway, sal ammoniac was used in the Middle Ages to change the color of vegetable dyes. In the 17th century, it was discovered that a liquid solution of ammonia could be distilled from the shavings of deer hooves and antlers. And then when it was crystallized, it was seen to also have carbon, which made this ammonia carbonate, then called the salt of hartshorn. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's a great. That what a I know fantasy name. Totally. But yeah, especially being like in the Middle Ages, and then later on the 17th century, and Feel so like forth. A, find that in the Elder Scrolls, right? Like, <laughs> Got to mix that with some bone marrow and right know, the know. hoofs. <laughs> now, of course, the Britain's Victoria era, which is when it became like big in terms of medicine, because mm. it was referred to as quote unquote lady revivers, <laughs> because you know the ladies are always fainting and needed to be woken up, yeah, and stuff. But I didn't realize that beginning in the early 20th century, boxers began using smelling salts during matches to keep themselves alert, especially after a particularly hard blow to the head. Oh, man. Now, more recently, smelling salts have been banned in competitive boxing, first in Britain in the late 50s and then in America in the 60s, not because ammonia gas is dangerous, but rather that it potentially hides a more serious injury, like oh, a head yeah. injury, concussion, yeah. etc. Now, there's still legal in other sports, though. There's actually been a rise of smelling salt use in hockey and football. I read that Peyton Manning, Brett Favre, and Tom Brady are just a few of the more prominent players who have either admitted to or have been photographed sniffing smelling salts on the sidelines. It seems like anything that they can get away with, athletes will get it, try right. to get I away with. I just totally did not think that that was a thing now. We talked about steroids a couple of weeks ago, but I just watched this Netflix documentary called Icarus. Which oh is, my God. Have you that seen do- that? Yes, it's insane. Everybody should go see this it's all about the russian doping scandal but it's about so much more than that involving 
performance enhancers and everything like and cover-ups and who's cover-ups and, and yeah. like the ways that people cheat and and also like the nature of what steroids do to you and the nature of how athletes like have to use these things or get around right. the drug tests and stuff strong recommend to go check out icarus yeah 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 but i mean because we've talked before a ton about placebo effect and mm-hmm. like you know like what actually is this mind-body connection and right. so like a lot of players admit that they use them before and during games because they speculated that smelling salts raise their adrenaline level levels right. by a factor of 10. But, you know, outside... Factor of 10. Factor of 10, that seems very specific, doesn't Whoa. that? Like, <laughs> That's also a lot. Not five times, not 11 times, not ten, <laughs> nine times, 10 times. Now, of course, outside the placebo effect, they could likely just get the same physiological results from taking a few deep breaths <laughs> right. without, you know, regularly inhaling a dangerous, toxic gas. <laughs> yeah, no but again, it's like, you know, when you're Tom Bradying at the Super Bowl, I right. can see being like, okay, I don't care. I'll yeah, just give like, a huff pipe. That's fine. Now, you know, like companies that sell the smelling salt, they come in tablet forms, I guess, these days. They say that, you know, it's used specifically for somebody that is unconscious that needs to be woken up. They do not advocate for people just like huffing on huffing it during <laughs> which yeah. it makes sense it makes sense <laughs> but yeah I mean I, th- I thought that was interesting first of all how old the smelling salts were yeah. the fact that it's ammonium carbonate and that people are still using them to this very I day I can't believe that yeah. that's the thing that, that Peyton Manning right Brady uh, Brady <laughs> so more on trains <laughs> I looked into the old Orient Express <laughs> More on trains. I was like, more on trains. No, not. <laughs> oh <laughs> my god! I want to know about those <laughs> trains full of idiots. Yeah, just bozos. So, oh, the Orient Express. Okay. Yes, which famously had a fictitious murder on it. Right. But I wanted to look into what it really was. Mm-hmm. So it connected Paris and Constantinople, which is now Istanbul. Right. Istanbul was Constantinople. Now it's Istanbul, not Constantinople. That's what. The, that's how we all know it. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a luxurious train that existed at a time when traveling fucking sucked. Oh, sure. You know, like it was dangerous and uncomfortable and it took forever. And it, this train was like, what if you could enjoy your tea and brandy in a smoking lounge as you went to someplace really far away totally. that would normally have taken months. Mm-hmm. So to get into the mindset of what this was like is hard for me to do. Mm-hmm. Like I, I've, it must have felt so special to go oh, yeah. to this distant land and be on this, like, like going through the wilds, oh, you yeah. know? Like so like, much terrain change. Yeah, and misunderstood. So, you know, I kind of see this a little bit, like the luxurious going through the the locals as kind of like connected to the way modern vacations are kind of not experiencing the true local experience. Oh, yeah. You know what sure. I mean? Like it's all sanitized and stuff like that. Like, you go to a resort as opposed to... Right, okay. And, like, you drive through the town, but then you you don't look out the windows or whatever the fuck. Exactly. But there's something awesome about the way it was being done back then. Maybe it's because, like, you never knew when actual danger could still come. Mm -hmm. Or, like, if the train broke down at some point, like, Mm -hmm. you're lost in the middle of nowhere. In the middle of nowhere. No way to get anywhere, nowhere to send a message to somebody. And it, so I don't think it was like fully sanitized the way modern resort experiences right. are. Right. Well, and I also wonder, I don't know any anything about the Orient Express, but I'm curious about like, did they have the same, not the same class setup as Snowpiercer, obviously, but like, was it kind of a luxury thing or it was. was it meant for travel? Okay. It was totally sort of a luxury Sort of like a Titanic-y. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like a Hindenburg-y. Right, sure. Like, you know. Titanic-y, Hindenburg-y, you know. Whichever luxury <laughs> right. death machine right. you want to exactly. pick. <laughs> 
but yeah, like, I, well, because I think it was also a really small train with only like a handful of cars. There were some sleeping cars. There was the dining car, which actually like wasn't attached to the train until like its second stop, wow. stuff like that. So okay. like you would have to go like have dinner in Constantinople at like right. this specific hotel and then you'd get on the train and, okay. and then it would pick up the breakfast car by the, like the next morning or something sure. like that. Cool. So the exact route changed over the years, but the Orient Express itself actually operated until 2009. No way. Yeah. Was it still called the Orient It was. was, (laughs) In 2009 is when it became, quote, a victim of high-speed trains and cut-rate airlines. Oh, right. That's right. Okay. I'm sure it was. Well, because also there wasn't really a compelling reason to go on it anymore. I saw pictures of it in 2009 and it looked like the LIRR or something. Like it was just like a normal train. Right. You're like, where's the dining car? And there's like way faster trains that go to the same places now. So it's like this was just an outdated thing. It's like the novelty without the novelty. Exactly. Dumb. 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 (laughs) So it doesn't exist anymore. But I do love thinking about like the earliest days that transportation technology came online mm-hmm. and how mind-blowing it must have been. Like before that, it would take you months in a carriage, as I mentioned. And like then we just built these railways that take you there in a day. Mm-hmm. And the literal idea of going to a completely different place would just be so exotic. I have such a tough time fully appreciating it. Because I was thinking about this the other week or so. I was like, I would really love to go on a train ride. But it's like, mm-hmm. why would you sign up to basically just be uncomfortable? Because right. the, I mean, I'm sure, the, like, are there luxury train lines these days where it's like a whole fucking to do? I think they exist, but yeah. they're hard to find right. and they may not go to the place that you want them to. Right. Now like, it's like, I want to go from point A to point B. I don't need right. this to be a thing. I did have this experience once where I got to be on an overnight train going from Granada, Spain to Barcelona. Oh, cool. And it was like, it was kind of like being on a cruise ship today where there's like, there's beds that are bunk beds in rooms and you just kind of like hang out and like there's a freedom to it that you don't have on an airplane. Getting up to just roam the train and like sitting in the dining car and just like looking out the window is the passing thing. It's like, I love that experience way more than a plane. Oh yeah, man. I was thinking like it would be so dope to take a train ride from LA to like Portland or something that like that. Fun. Just going up the coast. Which I think exists. Oh yeah. Oh it totally exists but it's like you're taking some time to do that because yeah. also it's like you're setting yourself up to be like cramped. No matter right. how you look at it you're going to be like I need to get the fuck off this train. Right exactly. <laughs> but like okay so you said Constantinople and what was the other? Paris. Paris. Okay right. which all right. I don't know how so it, like mileage of what that is. Well, it's basically but... like this was the thing that connected Europe. Right. And okay. it was like w- going from all the way in Eastern Europe to all the way in Western Europe. And it wasn't worldwide travel, but it was like the first time. Like this was at a time where it was hard to get spices from a specific sure, place. Sure. You know? <laughs> like, Completely different game. Well, and also just like Europe in general. I love that they still have the ability to, you know, when I was studying in Italy, it was like, I'm going to pop up to Amsterdam. Exactly. Just take a train up there. But, but the, and like. Like, this is like when the first trains existed to be able to do that. And people were like, we can go there now. So tell me about the murder. Well, (laughs) just kidding. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Not surprisingly, by the way, it peaked in popularity in the 1930s, shortly before commercial airplanes and other methods of transportation started becoming mainstream. (sighs) 
you know, I mean, there were, and like there were just more railroads. Yeah. And one of the things that's kind of interesting is that because it regularly changed routes and changed trains, the Orient Express became more of like a concept than an actual thing. Mm-hmm. And other companies ripped off the name and called their trains variations on the Orient Express. Right. And Agatha Christie's novel actually takes place on a ripoff of the Orient Express, not the Orient Express proper. Oh, my, my, my. Well, so, yeah, I've learned a lot because I didn't even know the Orient Express was a real thing. Yeah, no. Definitely thought it was fictional. It totally is. was like it, up until 2009. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like it, it's hard to say like the exact route because like these variations that went to like Bucharest instead was like mm-hmm. still called the Orient Express. Mm-hmm. And people still today take the Orient Express route using four different trains to recreate it. Right. To remember what it must have felt like back at the time at the beginning of Europe-wide travel. Sure. And I wish there was something like this Orient Express today. The feeling of going to this unknown place, that's also like kind of dangerous, but also probably not. Right. Like, I wonder if the next time we'll get that is many, many years from now when there's a theoretical colony on the moon Mm -hmm. and there are luxurious ferry services Mm -hmm. To, for spacecraft going from here to there. Right. I mean, it's like we both, we experience the loveliness of having so much communication and information accessible at our fingertips at right. all times that we kind of miss out on those experiences of being like, I literally have nothing to compare this to. Right. Whereas now it's like, you get your fucking travel book and you right. got your things and you go on Facebook and ask for recommendations. Yeah. And st- you know what I mean? So it's like, to some degree, I feel like, yes, and l- until there is a literal new frontier, right, right. we're not really going to have that experience yeah. because there's Yelp. <laughs> you know, exactly. and there's like TripAdvisor. Yeah. <laughs> so the whole shebang about the Snowpiercer is that it's the sacred engine and a perpetual motion machine, right? The whole it's, shebang. Yeah, that's like the thing about why it's able to like keep going, right? Yeah. So I was reading a bunch about perpetual motion machines and and I'm unfortunately going to burst peeps bubbles from the get-go right now because it's not a thing. They're not real. <laughs> yeah, I didn't yeah. think so. The devices have never worked and likely never will work as their inventors hoped. Now, this particular article I was reading was featuring this guy, Donald Simonick, who's a former physics professor and creator of the Museum of Unworkable Devices, which I I love. I want to go there so hard. Oh, man. Now, according to him, quote, in short, perpetual motion is impossible because of what we know about the geometry of the universe. Hmm. Nature provides no examples of perpetual motion above the atomic level. He's basically saying that to the best of our knowledge, perpetual motion machines would violate the first and second laws of thermodynamics. The first law of thermodynamics states that energy cannot be created or destroyed, only transformed from one form to another. So a perpetual motion machine would have to produce work without energy input. Mm -hmm. And the second law of thermodynamics states that an isolated system will move toward a state of disorder. Additionally, the more energy is transformed, the more of it is wasted. So a perpetual motion machine would have to have energy that was never wasted or moved toward a disordered state. Right. Now, according to Simonix Online Museum, the first documented perpetual motion machines included a wheel created in India in the 12th century, and it supposedly kept spinning due to an imbalance created by containers of mercury around its rim. But other attempts include a 16th century windmill, a 17th century siphon, and so on and so forth. Mm. But this was the the funnest part about this whole research dive is the most famous perpetual motion hoax was devised by Charles Redheffer in 1812. 
So just to set the stage, 19th century America was a prime time for hoaxes. Uh According to Kimbrew McLeod, author of Pranksters, Making Mischief in the Modern World. (laughs) (laughs) The Age of Enlightenment's focus on science, learning, and gaining knowledge through personal experience and observation led increasing numbers of people to seek out phenomena that they could judge for themselves. So also coupled with that, increasing literacy rates meant that more people were familiar with concepts like perpetual motion and were eager to see a machine that achieved it. So people were essentially interested in the new science without really understanding the new sciences. Right. So this guy, Red Heifer, comes on the scene in 1812. He opens a house for public viewing, and inside was a machine he claimed could keep moving forever without ever being touched or otherwise aided. Mm. This was based on an assumed principle of perpetual motion that continual downward force on an inclined plane can produce a continual horizontal force component. Okay. So I know it's hard to visualize, and I'll try to find like images of this actual machine, but basically the machine had this gravity-driven pendulum with a large horizontal gear on the bottom, and then another smaller gear that was interlocked with a larger one. So both the large gear and the shaft were able to rotate separately, and on the gear were two ramps, on the ramps were weights, and the weights were supposed to push the large gear away from the shaft, and the friction would cause the shaft and the gear to spin. So then the larger gear in turn would power the interlocked smaller gear, and then if the weights were removed, the machine stopped. Okay. I know it's obviously It's hard to picture, but like the the main point is that this doesn't achieve perpetual Right. The the idea is that, you know, it's the weights that make it happen where the you know, they're able to just keep going forever. Mm. Now, you know, first of all, in terms of just the exploitation and the kind of like charlatanism of it, Mm -hmm. sources differ on the amount that Red Heifer charged Philadelphians to see his machine. Some say it was five bucks, others say it was a buck, others say (laughs) women were free. But either way it was like this whole fucking thing, like there were bets up to a ten thousand dollars placed on its authenticity and whatnot so he was like so pleased with his machine's reception that he lobbied the state of pennsylvania for funds to build a larger one and in order to do that like in 1813 the state sent inspectors to investigate before they were like sure we'll dole out this money for you to do this thing and that is when his scheme fell apart (laughs) when when people looked at it yeah yeah exactly (laughs) well because first of all when they got there the inspectors saw that the machine was in a room with a locked door and a missing key and they could only view it through a window Uh right so in this case one of the inspectors this guy Nathan Sellers he brought along his son Coleman and Coleman noticed that the gears in the machine were not working the way Red Heifer claimed they did the cogs and the gears were worn on the wrong side so it Uh meant that the weights and the shaft of the gear were not powering the smaller gear the smaller gear was powering the larger device so of course rather than like confront the guy about it this guy sellers then like he hired another guy they went and built a similar machine and like set it up and instead of again like calling him out they basically were like come look at our machine and red heifer was so like Whoa, 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 how did you get this to work that he kind of like exposed his own bullshit? Yeah. Like by being like, I'll I'll pay if you tell me how it works. And they were like, <laughs> they didn't even want to fuck with him. They were just like, let it kind of leak out. And yeah. eventually Philadelphians were over it. But of course, <laughs> like because of the time and the communication was very slow moving, he was able to move on to New York City and he did the same fucking thing. Oh my God, so, this is a real monorail yes, situation. Yes, exactly. So, you know, people were just like, oh my, 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 we're going in. We want to see this, like the oddities. Perpetual and, motion yeah, machine. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 
Totally. I know. I wonder if that has anything to do with it. Maybe. So I okay. wish I could remember off the top of my head. You know what? I'm just going to drop in that amazing opening line. Well, sir, there's nothing on earth like a genuine, bona fide, electrified six-car monorail. what I say? Monorail. What's it called? Monorail. That's right. Monorail. 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 Now, so in New York City, he draws all of these large crowds, right? But again, his scheme starts to fall apart when during one time, the one of the onlookers was Robert Fulton, who's an engineer best known for developing the first successful commercial steamboat. And I guess when he saw the machine, he exclaimed, why, this is a crank motion. And he noticed, <laughs> yeah, he noticed that like the speed of the machine and the sound it made, they were uneven, which is the case if, you know, it was hand cranked, right. basically. So he made this offer in front of all of these onlookers saying, like, if I can expose the mechanism, right. will you, you know, suck your own dick? I don't know. Like, who right. knows? Yep. I forget what the, <laughs> what the wager was. was. Probably yeah. that. So, like, Red Heifer agrees probably because he's pressured because people are like, yeah, you know, if he was like, no. Backed into a corner. Totally. So then Fulton starts prying off the boards of the wall next to the machine and it reveals this cat gut cord that then runs through the wall up to the upper floor while oh Fulton, where God. Fulton found this old man sitting on a chair, <laughs> turning a crank with one hand and eating a crust of bread with the other. Oh my God. So then realizing they'd been duped, the crowd of spectators destroyed the machine on the spot and, wow. re- and Red Heifer was like fled, like he fled out of the city wow. and run out by being like, you motherfucker, like I'll kill you. So what's city to go to next so that's the thing is like <laughs> Wait, no no like little is known about him after that like oh, wow, i think okay. he just kind of because basically like the only records are that he constructed another machine in 1816 and was granted a, pa- a patent but he didn't let anybody see it and then like nothing is known about him since then and the patent was lost in a fire oh my god so this guy lit- but i mean he was a bamboozler <laughs> he got everything that was coming to him yeah so he definitely deserved it, but like... The level of snake oil yeah, that this guy was selling. totally. And I guess what was interesting about reading about it is like, because I myself have never given a fuck about perpetual motion machines, but right. just to like think that like why people, first of all, are fascinated by seeing something like that work, even if it's not true and right, are like right. okay with being duped, but also like why people are still trying to make perpetual motion machines. And, you know, according to Simonek, the guy I referenced earlier, he says that, they're motivated by their incomplete understanding of physics and they fail to grasp like the greatest strength of physics is its logical unity. Right. So he says, and just to end this section, he says, quote, could there be some place where geometry and physics are different? Maybe, but we have no clue where to find that place. And one might wonder whether we could even go there or exploit it for our purposes. That's armchair speculation and science fiction, not science. Yeah. I mean, it's not here on earth, wherever that is. Science. So did you have any favorite lines? I actually had a bunch of lines that I found were interesting. My two favorites in terms of just kind of the the poignant shit is, Mm. first, we control the engine, we control the world, and we control the water, we control the negotiation. And so... Power really is everything. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of that, you know, he who has the gold makes Mm -hmm. the rule kind of thing, that Mm -hmm. like spin on the golden rule, because it's like, again, like it's sort of just like a microcosm of how we just exist in society where unfortunately we'd like to think that it's like a true democracy and like everybody has input but especially (laughs) in these kind of extreme circumstances where it really is survival right i felt like it was like the true bastardization of people being like we have the power you need to like fit into your role right this is who you are it's like a it's like a train cast system system that's exactly what it is yeah Yeah. i really liked i think it was a tilda swinton line saying you suffer from the misplaced optimism of the doomed 
Oh. Which is like, are you right about that? Yeah. Like, is the doomed, is their optimism misplaced or is that like... Or sort of thinking like uh, there's always... Like there's, it's got to get better from here right, almost, right. but really. Well, also she's wrong about them being doomed. Right. You know, like that's like in her established universe, yeah. they're doomed. And so why are they being optimistic? Well, yeah. Also like for a person in, in power in the way that she is, it doesn't behoove her to like, you know, imbue her people with like confidence and, right, and exactly. sense of, you know, yeah. like ownership of the train. It's yeah. very easy to just tell people like, oh, you it, poor little dum-dums. Another like, form of control. Right, exactly. Yeah. And then I also found like stuff like, what does steak taste like again? Mm-hmm, you know, and mm-hmm. Jesus, Marlboro Light, you know, just like yeah, yeah. if there was a time where we looked back and we're like, man, well, first of all, Marlboro Light, when I was a smoker, was my brand. Oh, so I was well, like, whoa, well, that be like. <laughs> But also, yeah, like, if there was a time where we're like, oh, man, that thing that we just took for granted is not yeah. here anymore. Well, yeah, because they have that line about, like, cigarettes have been extinct for 10 years. Yeah. And, yeah, like, I was thinking about that again. We've talked about the banana extinction mm-hmm. that happened in the mm-hmm. 60s and that that's going to happen again. And it's like, yeah, I still want to know what did that banana taste like? Totally. You know? Yeah. <laughs> In a much smaller way than in the movie. But. Right. <laughs> right, 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 right. From the research that I did, there was a bunch of other stuff that I wanted to look into in terms of, obviously, the Philosopher's Stone, this right. weird urine discovery and whether it's ammonia or phosphorus or whatever. Yeah. And then like train societies. I was curious about that. Yeah. Like if, if something like that, like a self-contained yeah. society like that. Would... Yeah. Well, maybe we'll do Biodome or something else really yeah. stupid like that. But, yeah, but if you guys out there have any ideas for movies that we should do, either that you want to hear us talk about ideas from or that like you want to specifically hear those ideas. Yeah. Like something Roman science-y, you know, with the, <laughs> with the urine and the whatever. But yeah. yeah, we love your guys' suggestions and we really appreciate any feedback. And you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at oh that's a thing and so get in touch with us that way you can also email us at oh that's a thing at gmail.com find us at oh that's a thing.com please rate and review us on iTunes if you can if you do think about that please do yeah totally makes a huge difference you can also find me on Instagram and Twitter at it's a joy Mia I'm at Jeffrey Ekman and you can find us here next week doing the Tommy Lee Jones classic volcano classic an LA volcano LA volcano (laughs) see you then see ya bye